Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. I'm so glad that you decided to come back and take another look. If you've been here before, welcome back. Thank you so much. If you're new here, thanks so much for taking a look and coming and hanging out with us today. I'm still pretty new at this, so from one video to the next, there's a lot of changes that you'll see. I'm trying to nail down exactly how to do this, so thanks so much for bearing with me while I'm in this learning process. I think I definitely finally got some of the audiovisual stuff down, some of the background. Everything is starting to feel a little more permanent, but I can't describe how much it means to me that people have liked my videos and supported me so much so early on. I had a friend draw my logo for me and it was amazing. I really enjoyed growing and I'm still going to continue to grow this channel, but I'm just trying to get everything as you know, nailed down as I possibly can. One thing I'm trying to do permanently is make it Mobster Mondays or Mafia Mondays. I'm not really sure which. You guys weigh in. Let me know what you think works best. But I'm gonna try to get a video out every single Monday from now on. So Mafia Monday, Mobster Monday. I'll be here on Mondays. The mobster I'm covering this week is especially cool because unlike any other Mafia members that I've covered, I have a full account of what happened from this guy's point of view. Questions other than can you send me a pic? Or if you ever want to request that I research somebody, feel free to reach out to me on Facebook or on Instagram. My name is the same on here as on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. So wherever you prefer to watch videos, I am there and you can definitely reach out. Giuseppe Carlo Bonanno, also known as Joseph Bananas Bonanno, was born January 18th, 1905 in Castella del Golfo, Sicily. His parents were Salvatore Bonanno and Catherine Bonventre. Both of those names are really heavy hitters in the Sicilian Mafia. The Bonventres are a family that's probably just as important and powerful as the Bonannos. And they're close relatives to the Magadinos, who are the Bonannos' closest allies. Joseph Bonanno's uncle, Giuseppe Bonanno, and his older brother, Stefano, led a Mafia clan in Castellamare del Golfo. His father was the head of the Bonanno clan. So from the day he was born, he was destined to lead a mafia family. One of the strongest support systems that Bonanno's family had in Sicily was Stefano Magadino, and Magadino was the leader of the Magadino Mafia clan. Stefano was Joseph Bonanno's uncle, and he was his mother's brother. When Bonanno was a kid, it sounds like there was a mafia war going on. I don't see it being called that, but that's what it sounds like was going on over there in Sicily when he was a child. His family's clan went to war with the Bucatello clan. I might be pronouncing that wrong. They had been feuding with Felice Bucatello, who's the leader of the Bucatello clan. During this feud, Stefano and Giuseppe Magadino were killed in the conflict, and that led to their younger brother, Salvatore, to take revenge and kill members of the Bucatellos. Magadino left Sicily after things got really heated for him over there, and he headed to the United States. Maranzano was already over there in 1902 when Magadino arrived, and he became a very powerful component of the Castellamarisi clan. When I heard Bonanno was from Castellamare, I was 
so curious to know if Maranzano knew Bonanno back in Italy because they were both born and raised in the same area and they both were in the mafia before they came over to America. And no matter how much I researched it, I legit could not find one thing online that talked about their relationship back in Sicily. I searched. I searched hard. I was really f trying to find proof that these two had anything to do with each other back in Italy, but I found nothing. There's no records of Bonanno and Maranzano knowing each other in Sicily at all. I did read Bonanno's book though, and he does talk in the book a lot about himself and Stefano Magadino and Maranzano having a relationship back in Italy. In Italy, Maranzano was Bonanno's hero, and it just so turns out that Bonanno's father was Maranzano's hero, so it, it worked out. They, they, were, they were close. Bonanno's entire family moved to the United States when he was three years old. They stayed in the United States for 10 years and they stayed in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, but they ended up going back to Sicily in 1911. His father passed away four years later from complications that arose from injuries that he sustained in a battle in World War One, and his mother sadly died five years later from what what Bonanno says was a broken heart. His mother strongly encouraged him to go to school and work hard and study so that he could be a professional one day, and her reasoning was that she didn't want him to have calluses on his hands. So he did. He went to school, he tried very hard, and he even attended college, so he, he was educated. In 1924, Joey Bananas and Peter Magadino stowed away on a Cuban fishing boat and made it to Tampa, Florida. Bonanno had been in the Mafia pretty much since birth, and he had been active in Sicily since he was a kid. Even though he was being educated, he grew up in the Mafia life, and it sounds like he was getting involved in Mafia affairs at a very young age. But he only fled Italy once Benito Mussolini took control and initiated a crackdown on the Mafia. Up until Mussolini came into the picture, Southern Italy was still controlled by the Mafia clans. They were the government in the area. Mussolini wrote to his prefect, Your Excellency has carte blanche. The authority of the state must absolutely, I repeat absolutely, be reestablished in Sicily. If the laws still in force hinder you, this will be no problem as we will draw up new laws. Mussolini had taken over as dictator and he had no qualms about doing what he wanted, when he wanted, how he wanted. If he wanted to do something and it was against the law, he changed the laws. He sent the prefect to take control of Southern Italy, which was mostly Sicily, and to take control from the mafia families. The prefect, Cesar Mori, came in and just annihilated the towns that were under mafia control. He kidnapped, beat, and tortured tortured women and children and used them as hostages to force the mafia to give themselves up and give control of the area. This dude was no joke. He came to be known as the Iron Prefect. Although Mori did have a lot of success cleaning up the area, he brought the number of murders per year down from 200 to 23. He definitely didn't defeat the Mafia, and the propaganda told the Italian people that the Mafia was 100% defeated, and that definitely wasn't the case. The Mafia has always been and will always be a thing in Italy, has never been defeated, but he made enough of a dent that they were able to say that, and nobody really had a way to say that they were liars. Anyway, the point is, the Mafia got hit really hard by this dude. Things were not feeling great for the families that were running the show before Mori came around. Bonanno got kicked out of school when Mussolini forced all of the students in Italy to wear black shirts 
and recite fascist anthems in the morning, every single morning before school. He refused to wear a black shirt, so he was suspended for three months. That was his account of it. And let me just say up front, the book that Banana wrote was really interesting, but he kind of washes his life in this, like, film of... I didn't ever do anything wrong. So everything that I say that he says, take with a grain of salt, it's probably not true. So he said he refused to wear a black shirt, so he got kicked out of school, so he left Italy. More than likely, there was a lot more to that story. More than likely, he was, you know, doing crimes and ran away to save his mother. Something crazy. But I don't think it was over a black shirt, the way that he says. But, you know, fuck do I know. He and his cousin, Peter Magadino, who was also attending the school to be close to him, they mocked these black shirts and they refused to wear them, so they got permanently kicked out of school. And because of this, he left his entire family behind in Italy and he he traveled to Havana, Cuba with Peter. There was a mix-up about Peter's passport. Bonanno says that it was all well, Peter's passport, but I've heard since then that Bonanno traveled with no visa. But if you listen to what he says, he says it's because Peter didn't have the visa, so I really don't know what that is. But he traveled to Cuba with Peter, and in Cuba they stowed away on a Cuban fishing boat that was bound for Tampa, Florida because Peter didn't have a legal passport or because Bonanno didn't have a legal passport. Somebody didn't have a passport, so they stowed away on this fishing ship. So now he gets to America, and he does the same thing that every mafia member of his time is doing, and he starts bootlegging. He ran a distillery in a basement with two of his friends, Gaspar Di Gregorio and Giovanni Romano. Romano was killed in that basement from an accidental explosion. I don't know the process of making alcohol or what went into making alcohol when it was illegal, but I had no idea that it included combustible liquids that would lead to somebody's death, so that's wild. These people were taking some serious risks to get alcohol on the shelves when America banned it. I had always heard about meth labs exploding and people dying that way. I had never heard of it with alcohol, so crazy to hear about, but yeah, Giovanni Romano, he passed away after the explosion in the distillery. But while Banano was in this distillery, he can work. He has a really insane work ethic, and he's willing to do whatever he has to do to make money. He also has a very strong loyalty to the old ways of Sicily, which is something that's super rare to see in these younger guys nowadays. You gotta think, Luciano, Anastasia, they're bucking these traditions as hard as they can. They don't want anything to do with the old ways of Sicily or Sicilians. They'll tell anybody that'll listen that they don't agree with the way that the mafia is set up. They don't agree with the values and the traditions that are in place. Place. They want to change things. They want to revolutionize. And Bonanno did believe that moving forward, the mafia had to become more accepting. But he still grew up in Sicily, and he still had a deep-rooted appreciation for his roots, and he had a very big appreciation for traditions of his family before America. And that's because he grew all the way up there. Luciano came over to America when he was a, a kid, where, you know, um, Bonanno came over when he was older. He was somewhere between 18 and 21, 22 years old. You'll find also that Anastasia also held on to these values, and same thing with him. He, he grew up in Sicily. He didn't leave until he was older, so he had those same core values that he stuck to. While Bonanno was running this distillery, Salvatore Maranzano started to like him and appreciate the ideas that he had, and he realized that they were actually 
actually very similar to his own, even though Maranzano was a lot older than he was. He liked that he didn't have to dumb down his language for Bonanno because most of the guys in the mafia at that time, they were illiterate. They they weren't educated. They were very, very beneath the standards of the dialect that Maranzano wanted to discuss things with. If you remember from my Maranzano video, he loved to talk to people about the Roman Empire, about all kinds of things in history, and not very many people at the time could understand or appreciate what he was talking about. So now Bonanno comes in and he has these old school beliefs, he has a very strong work ethic, and he's willing to talk about the Roman Empire, and he's educated, and he's smart, and he's able to hold an intelligent conversation. So Maranzano starts to really like him. The two became really close. Bonanno's book, A Man of Honor, I swear, is a real-life love poem to this man. Bonanno was 19 years old when he got to America in 1924. By 1930, the Castello-Marisi War is just about to break out. Obviously, we know that Bonanno is is in the Castellamare group, and he's extremely close with Maranzano. And I've gone into the Castellamarisi war a lot in the Luciano videos, and especially in the Maranzano video, so I'm not gonna even do a recap here. If you want to know more about that, you can check out the Luciano video, you could check out the Maranzano video, I even go into it in the Anastasia video. But we do know that during this war, the Young Turks start to emerge. Now, Bonanno is 25 years old, he's very close to the age of the Young Turks, and even some of the people that he was close to, like Stefano Magadino from his family in Sicily, they turned to the Young Turks. But Bonanno was always more steeped in the ideas of honor and tradition and respect and dignity than the rest of the kids in the Young Turks. So Bonanno definitely knew that this was the way of the future, and he agreed that things should change, but he didn't agree enough that he joined them. Even though he didn't join the Young Turks, he joined forces with them and pretty much offered them if they ever needed any help, and he let them know, hey, I'm an ally, I'm here if you need me. Salvatore Maranzano made a deal with the Young Turks to end the war, and Masaria was killed. Again, I'm just breezing through this because I've gone through the Castellarisi war to nauseating extent in the Luciano and Maranzano videos. If you're interested, go over there. Um, I just, I can't, I can't do it again. <laughs> Although Bonanno was old school and he strongly held on to the beliefs of the Sicilian Mafia, much like the Mustache Pete's, he definitely wasn't one of them. For one, his age was very different and that set him apart. And he had progressive ideas about working with non-Italians and going into the markets that the Mustache Pete's wanted to stay far away from, such as drugs. Now, if you listen to Bonanno's recounts, he'll swear that he was never into dealing or doing drugs, that it's completely against his tradition, but every indicator from every outside source indicates that he was dealing drugs, so I, I think it's very likely he was selling drugs. So the distinction between him and the Mustache Pete's saved his life the night that Maranzano was killed. Because the night that Maranzano was killed was the night of the Sicilian Vespers, and it wiped out virtually all remaining Mustache Pete's from the Mafia. And they killed at least 40 mafiosi, as per the ADA at the time. And they took out the heads of multiple families, so if Bonanno didn't make a distinction from the Mustache Pete's, he may have been part of that but because he did, he was not. Bonanno and Maranzano were attached at the hip. Bonanno idolized Maranzano, and I think he was 
definitely devastated to see him go, but after a whole year of the entire mafia being at war with the Castella Marisi war, he was not willing to go to war with Luciano to avenge Maranzano. According to Bonanno, he had no idea that Maranzano was being set to be killed until he was actually killed, and he also had no idea that Maranzano had a hit out on Luciano and planned to kill him. I think it's pretty unlikely that he didn't know anything, but he said that going to war with Luciano would serve no purpose since Luciano only wanted to run his own rackets. But Anthony Bruno, who's a modern-day mafia expert, he says it's it's very unlikely that Luciano would have allowed Bonanno to live if he made it clear that he still backed Maranzano. So more than likely, Luciano and Bonanno had a conversation before Maranzano was killed and it went along the lines of, hey, get on board or join him in that office. And Bonanno did not want to join him, so he let it go. Maranzano had appointed himself Capo de Tutti Capi, which means boss of bosses. But once Maranzano was killed and the Knight of the Sicilian Vespers marked a brand new mafia, Luciano got rid of that position overall, and he instead put together a commission, which is a group, so that every one family had an equal say in what happened. Maranzano had appointed a boss for each of the five families of New York. After he died, Bonanno took his place and became the boss of his family, and he was only 26 years old. He was officially the youngest mafia boss in the entire nation, and to this day is one of the youngest ever bosses of a family no less a New York family. Even though he didn't take on the position of Capu de Tutti Capi, he was happy to have the responsibility of the head of the family. He was 26 years old. He called himself father of the family rather than boss, even though almost every person in the mafia was old enough to be his grandfather. And the reason for that is because in Sicily, it was supposed to be more of a family structure. In America, it became very institutionalized. It became like a corporate where the head of the family was the boss of the family and it kind of lost its family goal but in Sicily the way that they're put together is it's the father of the family. As far as the beef between Luciano and Maranzano he found out later that the beef wasn't even just about getting rid of the mustache peats. It was a rivalry over control of the garment district. Luciano apparently demanded nothing from them and according to Bonanno he was able to explain his lack of revenge for the death of his family's boss and choosing the path of peace by saying that he knew it was for the family and that they would want it that way. They did not want to go back to hitting the mattresses if they had to go to another war, it was going to be very bad for morale, and he probably wouldn't win it with every single soldier against him. After the Castellamarisi War closed out, Prohibition pretty quickly around that time closed out as well. So the Mafia kind of got out of the distillery beer making business because it wasn't profitable anymore since big corporations were making the alcohol again. Once that happened, Bonanno went to work for Peter Bonventre, his uncle, which would be his mom's brother, and he owned a bakery and he went to work over there. He was like a father to Bonanno who had lost his father at a pretty young age and he looked out for him and he took the role of his father pretty seriously. In Sicilian tradition, it's pretty typical for a father to take part in his son's choice of a wife. Sicilian men, they don't really get offended or annoyed by it. Well, 
at least Bonanno didn't. I don't know if every Sicilian man gets offended, but Bonanno didn't. I think it's worth noting right here that if you look at a family tree in Bonanno's family, it's like royalty. It's like they're kings and queens from ancient times. These mafia families, they're all marrying each other in this family. They, You don't just marry somebody that's not mafia connected. And I think that that's because of this, because the father has a huge say in who the son marries. And I think it's a little more than coincidence of just, oh, they run in the same circles. I definitely think it's to build peace within families the way that it is done in a monarchy or, you know, kings, queens, blah, blah. But that is kind of the background here. But again, they didn't get upset by it. The boys of the Bonanno family, they they just kind of looked at it like an endearing thing that their father cared enough about trying to set up a relationship for them. Peter Bonventre brought Bonanno to a small family gathering one day, and he introduced Bonanno around to all the girls, and one girl in particular was Faye Labruzzo, or Fanny, to her friends and family. She was the daughter of Don Colorio, a prominent mafia member who owned a six-story building in Bushwick with a butcher shop and a woman's clothing manufacturer in it and their house was also in this building which I don't know if anybody has any idea the costs of housing in New York even back then owning a six-story house in Brooklyn even a six-story you know building with stores millions and millions of dollars you have to be really 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 important to be able to own a property like that in Brooklyn so this dude was not just some average guy in the mafia Don Calorio is big time. Bonanno and Faye both knew Bonventre's intentions when he dragged Bonanno into Labruzzo's house a few days later. He said that they just like made eye contact and were like, oh, you know, just kind of rolled their eyes and they knew exactly what was happening. They they weren't stupid. Faye Labruzzo grew up with five brothers and five sisters, so it was a big family. Normally around this time, especially in Italian households, families of that size would have a really hard time making it in America. Things were not easy back then, especially because there was a very big fear of Italians at the time. There was the black hand scheme. So a lot of Americans were very scared of Italians, Sicilians. So it was really difficult for them to make it. So a family of that size having that much prominence and success in America is a great thing to see. It's also not that surprising because Don Clorio, he had been active since the days of Sicily, and he left that to come to America. He wasn't gonna fall into the poorhouse when he came. She grew up in luxury, but that didn't make her spoiled or snobby at all. She had a job, which was checking the clothing from the factory before it was shipped to make sure that the seams looked good and that everything was well put together. She would flick the clothing on the wooden mannequin to let the seamstresses know that the piece that she was looking at was good to go. She was also an amazing seamstress herself. She made alterations with dazzling speed, and she had a very accommodating and generous disposition. Just an all-around really nice girl, which is, you know, a lot of girls that grow up with money, they get a bit bratty, but Faye wasn't like that. Bonanno and Faye had a very typical Sicilian courtship. There were very strict and stringent rules put in place by her father, and they had to be followed. They were always being watched by him, and he wasn't allowed to stay at the house past 8.30. He even had to con her father into letting her go on a ride in his beautiful sports car, which was a convertible Buick Roadster 
sister, and he came along as well. The first time that Bonanno went to Faye's house, it was a Sunday afternoon, and Bonanno talked her father into going on a ride in the car with him and Faye. While they drove, Bonanno offered her father tickets to an operetta since he knew that he liked music, and her father turned around and said, are you listening? See what a fine son-in-law I'm going to have? On their first date... <laughs> Literally the first time he ever went to her house, and this man is talking about him being his son-in-law. It's not really a surprise that it only took them three months to become engaged. Bonanno did such a good job sucking up to Faye's father that before they were even married, her father deeded all of his property to him. He wrote a will and literally left every single thing he owned to Bonanno to manage for his family. They became really close, and Faye would tease Bonanno that him and her father were lovebirds. The family looked at Bonanno as a protector, and they also looked at him as the only person that could get through to the father when he was doing something stupid and reckless, which was pretty often, and Bonanno would be the only one that could talk some sense into him and, and keep him out of trouble. Faye and Bonanno were set to be married in 1929, but by then, shit started going down with Maranzano and Masaria, so they had to delay the wedding. The conversation where he broke it to her that he had to postpone the wedding is the same kind of conversation a soldier has with his wife before he deploys to a dangerous war-torn country. When Bonanno went to have this conversation with Faye and tell her that they couldn't get married in 1929, he gave her the option to get out of it. He said, if you don't want to wait for me, I understand. That's okay. And she said, are you stupid? Like, you're, you're mine. I will wait. It just sucks that we can't get married right now. That day that they had that conversation was the last time that Bonanno saw Faye for nine months. Two months after Maranzano was killed in 1931, Bonanno married Faye. Maranzano was supposed to be his best man. I, I swear, his book, he has, I think there's books one through ten. I don't know. I'm on book seven. But the first, like, three, four books of this book, I swear it's a straight-up love poem to Maranzano. This man farted sunshine and spit pixie dust in Bonanno's eyes. It, it really is sad when you think about it because Maranzano was Bonanno's star, moon, sky, everything, and either way, even if he didn't go to war for him, it was only to preserve his life. And it's really sad. It's sad to see somebody that just looked up to him and, and idolized him so much get married without him by his side. It was, it was hard on Bonanno. Faye and Joseph Bonanno had three children. Salvatore Bonanno, Catherine Bonanno, and Joseph C. Bonanno. I'm happy he didn't name any of his sons Stefano, because I think the name Stefano Bonanno, even if it makes me a child, I think that sounds ridiculous. But, who am I? <laughs> but Stefano Bonanno, like, come on, no. That's so mean to do to somebody. <laughs> During his time as a leader, Bonanno directed his family towards rackets in illegal gambling, loan sharking. He had really strong family connections elsewhere as well. They built strong connections in California and Arizona. And in Buffalo, Stefano Magadino led the Buffalo crime family, so you know they were thick as, well, thieves. <laughs> Bonanno also moved to Canada as well. According to Bonanno, the reason that he went to Canada was for the purpose of opening a new cheese company there because he had interests in cheese. We're gonna go later on into probably the real reason that he went to Canada, but we're not going there right now. So he went to Canada at one point, so he had connections in Canada. When I first heard this, I thought, you know, maybe the real reason was for bootlegging because a lot of bootleggers went to 
into Canada. We know that Capone had significant interests there. P.S. I just learned a new tidbit about Capone, and I hate him. So you know that I love hearing nasty little facts about him. When I was reading Banano's book, I found out that the word Capone means castrated male chicken in Italian, which I just love. I love every part of it. Although most mafia bosses, such as Lucky Luciano, Tommy Lucchese, John Gotti, so many of them, they preferred to wear flashy and expensive clothes. Bonanno never did that. He dressed nicely, but he'd never go out in a $3,000 suit. That just wasn't him. A lot of them also preferred to host lavish parties and nightclubs in Manhattan and Miami. And that was another thing that Bonanno absolutely did not do. When he hosted parties, he had small get-togethers in rural retreats, and there he helped prepare pasta and steaks for his guests and associates. So it was more of a family feel rather than the luxury and lavish lifestyle that the other bosses preferred. The only exception to the aversion for wearing expensive and flashy clothes was Bonanno's pinky rings. He preferred ruby, sapphire, jade, or onyx pinky rings, and that was about it as far as expensive items of clothing go, but his pinky rings were pretty big. Like, it was something he was known for. So since I brought Capone up, one thing that I really like about Bonanno, because I hate Capone, is that Bonanno and Capone hated each other. He was asked later on during an interview what he thought of Capone, and he said that he liked him, but that's not true. Capone was at war with Aeoli, and Aeoli was a member of the Castella Marisi faction, so Maranzano and Capone did not see eye to eye. They didn't like each other. And that means that Bonanno hated his ass too, because I don't fuck with people who fuck with people I don't fuck with. One day, Bonanno went to visit Faye, and he was arrested. They found a machine gun in the car that he was arrested in, and the police were convinced that he was Joe Bonventre, a relative of his slain cousin, the Bonventres. They found a machine gun in the car, so of course he must have been a gun runner. Really, it was just to protect himself because they went out during the time that they were at war, so that's why the gun was there. But at the time, Bonanno wasn't a name that was known to them, but Bonventre? That was a very big name in the Mafia. So since they made the Bonventre connection to the Mafia and the biggest gun runner in the world was Capone, who was connected to the Mafia, the newspapers printed that he was a gun runner for Capone. He griped about this a lot. He said that the mishap of unchecked and untrue journalism is something that he would spend the rest of his life dealing with. He was referred to as Joe Bonanno, an alias of Joe Bonventre, a gun runner for Al Capone. He hated this since Capone was only ever even allowed near the Mafia because Masaria was a desperate, slimy little shit and he needed men, so he hit up Capone. He double-hated this because Massaria and Capone, by extension, was on the other side of the war, so by associating him with Capone in the newspapers, they're associating him with the enemy. Bonanno said in his book that he's sure that long after he's dead, reporters will refer to him as a gunrunner for Al Capone, and it's just, there's absolutely no truth to it. In 1938, Bonanno left the country because his entrance into America on the Cuban boat was illegal. He re-entered the country legally and applied for citizenship, and it was granted in 1945, pretty much because he was a millionaire. He also wasn't very known in the country to be involved in the mafia, so he because he was rich, he got citizenship. Frank Costello called a meeting of the bosses of the families for a 
a court hearing against Tommy Lucchese. Costello accused Lucchese of plotting against Anastasia's life. During the trial, Lucchese refused to say one word. He was just giving a smug little smile. He wouldn't speak to anybody. Multiple people tried having personal one-on-one -on -one meetings with him, but he refused to speak with anybody. And it was going to get him killed. He was about to get killed. Finally, Bonanno talked to Lucchese alone, and he finally started to talk. Bonanno found out that Lucchese was defending himself as Genovese had said something to make Lucchese feel like Anastasia was coming after Genovese, and if he did, Lucchese would be next. Now, we know Genovese, and we know what a rat he is, so take that with a grain of salt. It probably didn't happen. Genovese just sucked. Bonanno was able to talk Lucchese into self-preservation, because up until that point, he was ready to die. He wasn't saying anything in his own defense, and they were about to rule that he get killed for trying to kill a boss. He talked Lucchese into throwing his life into Anastasia's hands, saying that he was wrong and Anastasia had the right to decide whether he lived or died. Anastasia said that he wouldn't kill someone who knew that they were wrong and promised to change their behavior. So it worked, but Bonanno told him to do it, he did it, and he lived. And he would have died that day if it wasn't for Bonanno. Bonanno was actually known for being a peacemaker. A lot of the treaties that happened, a lot of the deaths that were prevented, that came from Bonanno. August 18th, 1956, one of Bonanno's sons, Salvatore, married a mafia princess, Rosalie Perfacci, daughter-in-law to Joe Perfacci, the boss of the Perfacci family, which later they would come to be known as the Colombo family. They claim it wasn't a setup, but it was a huge event because it signaled a really strong alliance between the Bonanno and the Perfacci families, and obviously we know marriage is a good way to make that connection permanent. Bonanno threw his son the wedding of a lifetime. The bosses of each of the families attended, and the boss of every family outside New York came as well. There was representatives from almost, if not all, of the 50 states in America, and probably some from Italy as well. The wedding had 3,000 guests and a seven-foot-tall wedding cake. There was no expenses spared at this wedding, and he just went all out, and it was, it was a night that he remembered forever. It's worth noting here that later on, Rosalie Perfacci wrote a book talking about her relationship with Salvatore, and it did not paint him in a good she says that she had a really hard life with him and that he was very bad to her. And that's sad, so I don't know if the wedding was worth it, <laughs> but she was getting married either way. Might as well have a nice nice wedding. After Bonanno had moderated the commission court between Lucchese and Anastasia, Anastasia came before the commission again and asked permission to kill Lucchese and Gambino because he got word that they were coming after him again. The commission said no, and Bonanno established what he called the Pax Bonanno because by telling Anastasia that he wasn't allowed to kill them, they had to guarantee Anastasia's safety and they had to guarantee that he wouldn't be killed by Lucchese or Genovese because they said no. Everybody involved agreed to a ceasefire. On top of the illegal rackets that he encouraged, he also had several legitimate businesses as well. He owned three coat manufacturing companies, he had multiple laundries, he had funeral homes, and he had trucking companies. He owned a funeral home in Brooklyn, and everybody that needed a body to go away would bring it to this funeral home, and he would build special double-decker coffins, and they would fit more than one body at once, so when it was buried, you know, a legitimate burial took place, they would put in the body that needed to go away 
away and nobody was ever the wiser. He owned a dairy farm in upstate New York and he also had cheese companies in Wisconsin and Canada and he also was involved in real estate investments in New York and Arizona. In 1957, Bonanno traveled to Palermo for the Grand Hotel Air Des Palms Mafia meeting. I'm so sorry. I know I chopped that the hell up. I'm sorry about that. A month later, he was called back for the Appalachian Conference, which Vito Genovese called and then ratted out and everybody got arrested. Bonanno claims that he skipped this meeting, but conveniently, a capo, Gaspar Di Gregorio, the one that he worked in the distillery with, he was there and he was caught and arrested and it just so happened that Gaspar Di Gregorio had a newly renewed driver's license belonging to Bonanno on him at the time. So even though he said he was not Bonanno, Bonanno was charged and his business was pretty seriously affected by the arrest because it was the first time that a lot of these guys had ever been brought to the attention of the American public and they didn't like it. Since then, a lot of movies have been made that glamorizes the mafia, but back then, the American public was pretty against the mafia and him being involved in the mafia, it had a bad effect on his companies. While Bonanno was away in Palermo, Albert Anastasio was killed in America. Bonanno claims that he had no knowledge of Anastasio's upcoming death and he was really upset about it because it meant that the Pax Banana was over. He claims that he doubted anybody would have had the gall to kill Anastasia if he hadn't been out of the country. Although he thought it was people within Anastasia's own family that killed him, he believed that Genovese and Lucchese knew about it and they didn't do anything to stop it. Which we know it was Gambino and Genovese that had Anastasia killed. I've heard a few other theories and that it was other people, but at the end of the day, the general consensus is that it was Genovese and Gambino who had him killed. Um, but Bonanno says that Genovese and Lucchese knew about it and didn't help but didn't stop the killing. To be fair, it is possible, it is probable that Bonanno didn't know about plans to kill Anastasia because they were probably the only two bosses that actually grew up in Italy. They both leaned towards the conservative side and that's why Bonanno fought so hard to keep Anastasia in place. So I don't think he would have agreed to Anastasia being killed. But as I said, his book is very washed out and makes it seem like he never did anything wrong. So I don't believe him when he says it, but it doesn't really make sense that he would get on board with it either. In the Anastasia video, I did talk about the truce that Bonanno brokered between Anastasia and Genovese after Genovese had Frank Costello shot. He prevented Anastasia from killing Genovese right then and there, which he easily could have done. And then Anastasia was killed, probably for the decision of not killing Genovese right then and there, which is sad. He talked about how Anastasia had no idea that his life was in danger. It's not like they were at war. He didn't have a bodyguard with him. He just went to the barber and, and got a haircut and a shave. He had no idea that somebody was after him. And it's not like he died fast. So it's, it's a really sad situation what happened with Anastasia. I may be biased because I like Anastasia but overall, I look at it as a really sad situation. According to Bonanno, he didn't attend the Appalachian Conference because he didn't agree with the reason that the meeting was being held. The man who hosted the meeting had expressed concerns over his relationship with authority in the town, and they had a national meeting in that town the year 
before. He said that the New York families could handle the issue of Anastasia's death as well as the decision of who to put in place as the new boss alone. They didn't need a national meeting. The New York bosses could do it on their own. In any case, whether it was him or not, the media reported that it was him given that his driver's license was found. This was the first time that the public had ever even really heard of Joseph Bonanno. He had not been in the limelight. Nobody ever even knew who he was. But after this arrest, authorities came forward and said, yes, Joseph Bonanno is the boss of one of the five families in New York. He had been the boss of the family since the creation of the mafia in 1931, and nobody in the public knew who he was until this conference. But after the Appalachian meeting, prosecutors identified him as the head of one of the New York Five families, and he became a household name in America real quick overnight. I think I just said the same thing twice. In 1963, Joseph Colombo came forward to Tommy Lucchese, Carlo Gambino, and Stefano Magadino, and told them that he had been sent by the boss of his family, Joseph Magliocho, to kill them. The commission realized that Joseph Magliocho couldn't have thought this scheme out on his own. He was still super new to the game. He was only the boss because Perfacci had died recently, and, and he had been dealing with the Gallo Wars ever since he came into power. There's no way this man thought all of this up on his own. The commission concluded on their own that Bonanno must have been the real brains behind this plot. They summoned both Bonanno and Magliocho to appear before the commission to explain themselves. In mid-1964, Bonanno fled to Montreal, so this is the Canada trip that I'm talking about. In his book, he says that he went to Montreal to establish his cheese company, but it just so happens that the time corresponds with this event. And he left Magliocho to deal with the commission on his own. Magliocho was, he was really sick and he knew he was in deep shit. Like, things were bad. It was not looking good for him. He went before the commission and he confessed his part in the scheme. With his confession, it became very clear that Bonanno was the real brains behind the operation and the plan was to make Magliocho his right-hand man after he took over the commission. Magliocho was vexed because he had been denied a seat on the commission earlier, and that's why he got on board with this plan to kill the other bosses. While Bonanno was in Montreal, he lied on his immigration paperwork, and he said that he had never been convicted of a criminal offense. He was arrested and held at the Bordeaux prison for almost 90 days before he was forced to leave Canada. The commission put Joseph Colombo in place as the boss of the family after he refused to kill Tommy Lucchese and Gambino, and they forced Joseph Magliocho to retire as the boss of the family. In October 1964, Bonanno came back to Manhattan. When he came back to Manhattan, he was scheduled to testify before a grand jury. He was having dinner with his lawyer, and he was apparently kidnapped. He and his lawyer attest to this, so I think he set up a fake kidnapping, but according to Bonanno, he was kidnapped by Stefano Magadino's men and brought to a ranch in upstate New York where he was held for weeks. He says that him and Stefano talked stuff out and Magadino released him. It's worth noting that most people believe that he staged this kidnapping once he heard that the commission figured out the plot to kill the other bosses, which that's more than likely what happened, let's be real. Plus he had this upcoming grand jury that he had to testify in front of, so, you know, it couldn't have been upsetting to get away from that. So he had a lot of reasons to stage a kidnapping and just disappear. After he was released, he had Magadino's men take him to Texas, and he made his way to Arizona, where he hid out in his house. His house in Arizona had a secret room that he could hide in, so he stayed there for a little bit. The FBI tapped Sam the plumber to Cavacante talking, and they found out that the other bosses of the New York family 
families were actually really surprised that he disappeared. While he was in Arizona, he had a friend reach out to his son Salvatore, or as other people know him, Bill, and let him know that his father was okay. Salvatore told his lawyer that he was okay, and the lawyer got on TV and said that Bonanno was okay and was going to appear in court the following Monday. Bonanno said that he had no interest in doing this, so when he didn't return, the court subpoenaed Bill to ask where his father was. According to Bonanno, his son did not know where he was at the time, so he couldn't tell authorities even if he wanted to. Salvatore was arrested for not telling the police where his father was located, and shit started to go down at this time. Soldiers in the family could be heard on FBI tapes saying things like, that son of a bitch took off on us and left us here alone. Not too long after that, he returned to New York, but he didn't broadcast his return. He let his beard grow out and he wore frumpy clothing so that nobody would recognize him. Now, obviously while he was gone, somebody had to take over as the boss of the family. Bill Bonanno, or Salvatore, was the person who Joe Bonanno had named as his consigliere and main proxy. But Gaspar Di Gregorio, the one that was caught with his license in the Appalachian meeting, he stepped up to take control of the family. Men in the family were unhappy about Bill Bonanno because he rose through the ranks really fast, and it was obvious nepotism that was behind his raise. Plus, Bill was college educated. He was a lot more geared toward a white-collar career than he was geared towards a life in the mafia. Soldiers in the family wanted somebody who had been out there on the streets as they had. Bill never lived that life. He wasn't about that life, so they got behind Di Gregorio. This led to a war within the Bonanno family between loyalists of Bill Bonanno and, by proxy, Joe Bonanno and loyalists of Gaspar Di Gregorio. In early 1966, Di Gregorio hit up Bill. Ring, 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 ring. Hey, Bill, I know we've been beefing, but how's about we meet up and we work this shit out? And Bill, Bill's like, oh, hell yeah, man, I'm there. How about we meet up at my grand uncle's house? It's on Troutman Street in Brooklyn. And Di Gregorio goes, okay, sounds good, see you there. While Bill and his entourage are waiting at the house for this meeting, they get a call to reschedule. This leads them to leave, and all of a sudden, as they're leaving, they start getting shot at. Nobody was hurt in the shootout, but it was pretty clear that there would be no hugs shared between Di Gregorio and Bonanno. This was all a part of the Banana Wars, as the media called it. There's a lot to go through, so I'm just gonna breeze through it really fast. On October 21st, 1964, Carlo Samari, a Bonanno soldier, is shot dead outside his home in Brooklyn. February 10th, 1965, Joe Badalamonte, a Di Gregorio soldier, is killed in Bay Ridge. March 15th, 1965, Bill Bonanno, Joseph Nataro, John Morales, and Frank Labruzzo are shot at on their way to a peace meeting in Manhattan. On March 18, 1965, Joe Bonanno finally comes out of the woodworks. He appears before the commission, and he pretty much pleads his case and says that he wants to take back control of his family. The commission sides against Bonanno and in favor of Di Gregorio, so Di Gregorio remains the boss of the family. Bonanno says his boo-hoos and leaves New York in exile for 14 months. January 28, 1965, this is the date of the Troutman Street ambush of Bill Bonanno and his people. They had snipers placed on rooftops, in phone booths, behind fruit stands. It's insane that there was no deaths or even injuries in this fight. It's wild. Somebody should have died in this fight. This scene, a shootout on a Brooklyn street, is what inspired the scene from Godfather 2. April 24th, 1966, Joe Nataro had his Bronx house firebombed. Joe Bonanno now comes back to New York to rally his troops and fight the commission again. He stays in New York a while and he goes to the commission and he tells them, hey, I didn't just disappear, I was kidnapped by Stefano Magadino. He ends up going back into hiding after this though, so things probably didn't turn out that great for 
him. While Bonanno was in New York briefly, Joe Notaro died of a sudden heart attack. July 13th, 1966, Frank Mari, a Di Gregorio top-ranking soldier, is shot in Bay Ridge, but he wasn't killed. On March 17th, 1967, Bonanno had John Bielo, a Genovese family capo, killed in Florida. He had him killed because he was with Colombo, and the two of them are the ones that tipped off the commission about his plot to kill the members. Bonanno didn't make a move against Colombo because he was a boss and that's the last thing he needs, another commission hit on his record, but Bilo was just a capo, so off he goes. October 25th, 1967, Vince Casser and Vince Garofolo, Bonanno loyalists, were killed in front of a Brooklyn bakery. P.S. Why do people always die in front of bakeries? I hear so many deaths happen in front of bakeries. I, it's like they're a dangerous place. They're not but so many people die in front of them. March 4th, 1968, Pietro Croatia, Di Gregorio's underboss, was shot getting out of his car on a Manhattan street corner. He lived, but this incident led him to retiring from the life altogether. He said, nah, screw this shit, I'm out. March 11th, 1968, Bonanno's bodyguard, Salvatore Perone, was killed in Brooklyn. April 1st, 1968, Mike Consolo was killed in Brooklyn after he had just testified regarding the shooting on Troutman Street. There's the argument to whether he was killed by the Bonanno side or if he was killed by his own side because he was considering flipping over to Bonanno's side. April 5th, 1968, Billy Gonzalez, Salvatore Perone's best friend and Bonanno loyalist, was killed in front of his Bronx home. April 17th, 1968, Francisco Croatia, Pietro Croatia's brother and Di Gregorio loyalist, was killed at a Brooklyn social club. July 22nd, 1968, Joe Bonanno's house in Tucson is shot up and a stick of dynamite is thrown down his chimney. He claims that this was done by the FBI and that there were people arrested for it that were not involved in the mafia. He doesn't think it was involved. There's a whole conspiracy theory and FBI agents that were fired. It's a whole thing. September 18th, 1968, Frank Mari, the new underboss for the Di Gregorio faction, and Michael Adamo, the consigliere, were killed. September November 23rd through October 28th of 1968, as much as Bonanno swears it was the FBI who coordinated the attack on his house, during this time there's a string of bombings in Tucson targeting all Bonanno loyalists and their businesses. So more than likely, this was mafia related. I don't know why Bonanno swears it had nothing to do with the mafia. I really don't know why he's so adamant that it has nothing to do with them. But when there's a lot of other stuff going on, you know, it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck. After all this fighting back and forth, Joe Bonanno gets tired of people getting hurt and killed over this war. He went to the commission and he finally officially agrees to no longer seek to be the boss of his family anymore. He retired as boss and moved to Arizona and Bill also resigned as consigliere and went to Arizona with his father. Now this wasn't just a peaceful, oh he walked into the sunset retirement. The mafia let him live because he had such a big role in the creation of the mafia. But they also let him know, like, if we ever hear that you even so much as sniff around the Mafia at all ever again, we will have you killed immediately. Like, you are done. They exiled him to Arizona. So as much as people like to use Bonanno as the example of somebody that retired gracefully, that's not what happened. This man was exiled and never allowed to have anything to do with the Mafia ever again for threat of his life. So it wasn't just this picture perfect. He skipped off into the sunset. And a lot of people look at it like that. They think, oh, Bonanno retired from the Mafia. Why can't other people? 
Bonanno was exiled from the Mafia. He says he retired, he was exiled. The commission got tired of all this fighting as well, and they removed Di Gregorio as the leader because he couldn't quell the fighting in his own family. If there's this war going on for seven years in your own family, clearly you can't lead. They put Paul Shaka in place as the boss. Tommy Zumo was killed on February 6th, 1969. This was the last death of the Banana Wars. He was killed in the lobby of his girlfriend's Queen's apartment. Joseph Messino, who later became the boss of the Bonanno family from 1991 to 2004, was the shooter. Messino is now in the witness protection program after becoming the first ever boss of the five families to turn rat. Di Gregorio died of lung cancer in 1970, and Shiaka was put in jail in 1971. So things were really unsteady for the Bonanno family after they had had such a long reign with no issues in their family whatsoever. So there is a charge that Bonanno's sons, Bill and Joe Jr., got involved with Lou Peters, a Cadillac Oldsmobile dealer in San Jose, Lodi, and Stockton. Louis E. Peters turned into an informant and helped the FBI indict his two sons. When you read Bonanno's book, this is the way that he says that it went down. He bought a Cadillac from a dealership. The guy that sold him the car asked him to become a partner in the dealership that he was looking to open on his own in California. He said no, he was retired, and he didn't want to be in that business, but thanks anyway. A week or two later, he came into the store, and the sales guy introduced him to his boss, who he was now opening the California location with. Bonanno wished them luck. The sales guy, knowing Bonanno had two sons living in California, asked if Bonanno could help facilitate some of the logistics of getting involved in a car dealership in the area. He says that he agreed and said that he would call them. He called his sons and asked them to help the sales guy, and that was that. The two accounts are vastly different, but I definitely, again, I noticed that in his book, he acts like he was an angel. He acts like he never committed a crime in his life. He never did anything wrong. The way that he talks about the plot on the commission members, it was just a spat. He was mad, but he never tried to kill anybody. It's, it's a really interesting read, but it's pretty far removed from reality. In April 1983, Bonanno served eight months for obstruction of justice. This charge was based on him blocking a grand jury investigation into allegations that he was laundering money through businesses operated by his sons, Salvatore and Joseph, in California. So this is that whole car dealership business. In 1985, he was sentenced to 14 months for contempt of court after refusing to testify in a federal racketeering case. I still find it wild that people actually go to jail for refusing to testify. I always thought that the Fifth Amendment protected people from going to jail, so I have absolutely no clue how so many Mafia members have gone to prison over refusing to testify. It's crazy. It's written into the Constitution. But I think that there's something that they can do. They can, like, file a motion saying that you can't claim the Fifth. I don't, I don't know. But it's wild, because a lot of people do serious time over it. This 14-month sentence was after he refused to testify in a federal racketeering case in Manhattan against the leaders of the five families in New York. I, I think that this is the commission trials, where Paul Castellano was being tried. And I'm pretty sure this all came from John Gotti's friends, because he was a loudmouth. 
something along those lines. It, it it was it was at the time they were they were going after the bosses of the five families. Rudolph Giuliani, who went on to become mayor of New York, wanted to question him about statements that he made in his book regarding the origins of the mafia and the existence of the commission. He was transferred from a federal prison to a medical center prison due to his ailing health. By that time, he had already had three heart attacks and because he was really old. Before going to prison, he and his son Bill sat down for an interview for 60 Minutes reporter Mike Wallace. Banana was released from prison November 1st, 1986. In 1965, a reporter for the New York Times, Gay Talese, left his job to focus on magazine writing. He met Bill Bonanno in a courthouse that year, and after this meeting, he signed a $30,000 advance to write a book about the mafia. This man was dedicated uh, to his work, to say the least. He worried that Bonanno Bonanno's enemies would mistake him for an associate and that he'd get killed for his interviews with the Mafia members. And his interviews spanned over a seven-year period. So it was pretty much from the day that Banano was kidnapped off the street to the day that the Banana Wars ended. So it was a seven-year period that he interviewed Mafia members. He also worried that the FBI or another law enforcement agency would subpoena him to appear in court to disclose what he had learned about the Mafia during his interviews. But they never did, so it was something he didn't need to be scared of. He traveled to Castella Mare del Golfo to explore and research the Bonanno's origins. The book is called Honor Thy Father, and it's all based around Bill Bonanno. Vito Genovese, Lucky Luciano, and Joseph Perfacci were featured in the book, but the story is about Bill Bonanno and his life within the Mafia. The book is finished off with his theory that the Italian Mafia is not very different from different gangs that came with previous waves of immigration like the Irish gangs, or black and Latino gangs that Talisi saw as following those gangs. He said that the rise of these gangs and those before it and after its rise are rooted in a minority group's oppression. The New York Times criticized this book saying that it conveys the impression that being a mobster is much the same as being a sportsman film star, or any other kind of public personality. This book quickly became a bestseller, but Joe Bonanno was furious about it. He didn't talk to his son for over a year, which is wild because he was old school Sicilian. In that tradition, family comes before everything else. He was super close with his family, so to not speak to one of his sons for a year, that's a huge move. He eventually got over his anger and reasoned that the book portrayed him in a bad light because the writer had to use newspaper articles and court proceedings to piece together his character, and most of those documents were untrue, so the depiction of him in the book is off. In 1980, Faye died at the age of 75 years old. Panano was heartbroken, because Faye was his entire world. So sad. After Honor Thy Father came out, Bonanno decided that he wanted to write his own book. In 1983, his autobiography, A Man of Honor, the autobiography of Joseph Bonanno, came out. He defended his decision to write the book by saying that Omerta represented a lifestyle and tradition greater than or beyond just the code of silence it is generally understood to be. And since he wrote this in a book and didn't become a government informant, he did not violate his code of honor. Joseph Bonanno passed away on May 11th, 2002 of heart failure. He was 97 years old. He's currently buried at Holy Hope Cemetery and Mausoleum in Tucson, 
right next to Faye. Joseph Bonanno is a household name that everybody in America knows. Whether they're interested in the mafia or not, he was the boss of the Bonanno family for 35 years. It's literally what the American public knows this family as, is his name. There's no way that you'll ever meet anybody who doesn't know who Joe Bonanno is. He's portrayed in movies such as the 1991 film Mobsters, a 1999 Lifetime movie called Bonanno, A Godfather's Story, and The Irishman. It's thought that the Godfather movies were written about him, and he's also spoken about a few times in TV shows. On The Sopranos, which is what led me here, he's used as an example of somebody who was allowed to retire from the Mafia when Eugene Ponte Corvo wants to retire to Florida because he inherited a shit ton of money from his aunt. The mention that I spoke about in the beginning of the episode was when Tony mentioned that Joe Bananas went to war against Carlo Gambino for seven years. He was also portrayed in the final episode of Boardwalk Empire and in the 2019 series Godfather of Harlem. Say what you will about the man, but Joseph Bonanno led the family for longer than any other boss I've ever heard of. He escaped fascism to come to America and become the youngest ever boss of a family at 26 years old after losing one of his best friends. He went through 35 years of being the boss of a family and never once was indicted while being active in the mob. He led his family in peace, and they were the only family that hadn't had an internal war or controversy up until the Banana Wars. He's definitely legendary and super interesting, and I definitely recommend you go read his book if you want to read more. It's interesting to hear his background, his life, his family. I wouldn't take much stock in what he says as far as his crimes go, but... He's an interesting person. That's all I have for today's episode on Joe Bonanno. Thanks so much for watching. I really hope you enjoyed it. Please go ahead and like, follow, subscribe, do all the things, and I will see you next time. Bye.